morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again today on Next on the Tee. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort, the Leather Shop, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Company, and our good friends over at Frogger Golf. And if you haven't checked out FroggerGolf.com lately, folks, they have an array of wonderful products. I can't brag enough about their accessories like the amphibian towel that won the best new product at the PGA Merchandise Show back in 2009, or their catch latch technology that easily and securely attaches and releases your amphibian towel, your brush pro, club club cleaner, you know, that's right there on your golf bag. And it's really a great way to make sure that you're not asking the group behind you, hey, anyone find my towel? Check out their uh, great products online. You can find them at froggergolf.com. And let me also say how much I love the new Bobby Jones Fall Apparel. Please go to bobbyjones.com and take a look at their new fall arrivals. Plus, while you're there, you can watch playing lessons from Mr. Jones himself. Many of those lessons still hold true today. So check out their golf shirts. Their sweaters so soft and comfortable, folks. They're going to keep you warm and both looking good and feeling good, whether you're in the office or you're out on the golf course as well. So check check it all out at bobbyjones.com. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and this morning uh, we're going to be celebrating the life of Arnold Palmer with you know, two men who knew him extremely well. First up with me this morning is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. There isn't a better interviewer in the history of broadcasting than Peter is. And there you know, probably isn't a member of the media who knew Arnold Palmer better and more intimately than Peter did. You know, He was there when they launched the Golf Channel back in 1995, did an interview with Mr. Palmer shortly after he lost his wife, Winnie, so we'll hear, you know, Peter's memories of Mr. Palmer, and uh, Peter will be with me here in just a few moments. Following Peter, we'll get a return visit from Champions Tour Pro Bob Friend, Jr. Bob is is from Pittsburgh, you know, my hometown. His father was a pitcher for the Pirates for many years back in the 1950s and 60s. He grew up in the game of golf around Mr. Palmer as a a member of uh, Oakmont Country Club. He played in several events with Mr. Palmer, including in the same group at the 1999 Bay Hill Invitational, which is now, you know, the Arnold Palmer Invitational. So Bob will share his memories and his stories of Mr. Palmer when he joins me a little bit later in this half hour. So, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to hear a lot of great stories this morning. I'm so glad that you're with me here to take the journey over the next hour or so. And like I mentioned a moment ago, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort, which is an absolutely spectacular place. Their Pete Dye and Donald Ross design courses were ranked number one and number two in the state of Indiana by Golf Week. It was the site of last year's Senior PGA Championship. They recently hosted the LPGA Legends Championship. Go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great it is and to book your stay. We're also sponsored by our friends over at the Leather Shop, folks, makers of top-quality custom-made leather dress, casual, and golf shoes. Folks, do your feet a favor and put them inside shoes. They're going to keep them feeling good and looking good all day long. You can find them online at the-leather-shop.com. And every week here on Next on the Tee, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women who are serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families are making to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans out there for all that you and your families have done for us over the years. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Folks, if you happen to see a member of our military when you're out and about, whether it's you know, in a restaurant, at the grocery store, at the airport, wherever you might be, please stop for a moment and tell them thank you. They are our true heroes. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It is such an honor for us to have Next on the TV a part of your network. 
You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. And I also want to continue to remind our veterans out there, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. What a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information designed specifically for our veterans out there that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial to you. Again, globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Folks, there is no one I admire and respect more associated with the game of golf or broadcasting than Peter Kessler. Peter's interviewed almost every major golf figure from the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early, you know, early to mid-1990s, he was the voice of HBO Sports. He moved on to become the primary broadcasting talent when the golf, show, or the golf channel launched back in January of 1995. He's also hosted his own show on Sirius XM PGA channel. You can stream or download you know, many of the outstanding interviews Peter has done over the years with the legends of the game by going to checking out the Peter Kessler show on iTunes. And also, if you love the game of baseball and you're a big fan of the HBO documentary, When It Was a Game, that magical voice narrating the story is Peter Kessler. And when you talk about great interviewers or show hosts, you know, no one has ever done it better than Peter Kessler has done it. Good morning, Peter. How are you, my friend? Uh, great to be with you. Thanks for the big introduction. I appreciate it. I always enjoy being on the show, Chris. So, uh, Peter, we're we're you know we're all sort of simultaneously mourning the passing of Arnold Palmer and celebrating you know his life. Just just start off. What are some of your favorite memories of you know the time that you got to spend with Mr. Palmer? Well, let's see, the uh, first day that I ever officially spent time with him was in October of 94, and the Golf Channel was forming, and it would go on the air a couple of months later, and Arnold was one of the two co-founders of the Golf Channel, and I went up to Latrobe, Pennsylvania to interview him and to spend some time with him and get to know him a little bit, because it was clear that we were going to do some interviews and work together. And when you get to Arnold's office in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which is where he's from, and he still spent his summers every year, you walk into his office, but it's really a converted house. And so you walk into the front hall, and the first thing you see under glass, huge frame, is a master's green jacket. And sprinkled around the jacket are the four Sunday scorecards from 1958, 1960, 1962, and 1964. Each one of those was a Sunday scorecard representing the four times that Arnold Palmer won the Masters. And there are wax seals and there are signatures and there's all kinds of official-looking stuff from the Masters Committee. And I'm standing there alone and I'm looking at it. I look at the card from 1958 and I recognize it for what goes the Sunday card. And then I look at the card from 1960, and I knew that Arnold finished 3-3-3 three, three, three in 1960 to win the Masters. Well, this card says 3-4-6. And I thought, I know what card this is. This is the wrong card. This is the 1961 card, which is the year that he lost the tournament by making a double bogey from the middle of the 18th fairway after accepting congratulations on his win from a member of the gallery. So he makes double bogey in 61 from the middle of the 18th fairway to lose to his good friend Gary Player. So I realized that's the card I'm looking at, and they put the wrong card under this glass. 
So at that moment, Doc Giffen came out. Doc was Arnold's longtime administrative aide and wrote most of the things that Arnold was given credit for writing. And he introduced himself to me, and we talked for a couple of minutes, and I said, you know, Doc, the wrong card is in, in here. This is the 1961 card, not the 1960 card. And he said, look, you just got hired. You don't want to get fired. He said, there's no question that this is the right card. And there's no question that this is not a mistake. And look at all these signatures and look at the wax seals. And, you know, do you, don't you realize that thousands of people have seen this and nobody has made the same comment you have? And I said, well, I'm certain of my ground, Doc. He finished 333 and this is the wrong card. So he said, well, how would you like to tell Arnold? I said, I'd be happy to tell Arnold. So he goes and gets Arnold and Arnold comes out and we shake hands and, his fingers are like bananas, and they're twice as wide as any of your fingers. And you lose your hand in there. And I said, Arnold, I said, you know, this is the wrong card. I said, this is the card from 1961 where you screwed the whole thing up from the middle of the fairway and made a double bogey to lose the golf tournament. So Arnold turns around, and he folds his arms, and he looks at the card, and he looks at the card, and he looks at the card, and then finally he says, I can't believe I lost to that son of a bitch. <laughs> and that's how we started our that's how we started our friendship and then the next thing that happened was we went down to the driving range it was a monday and uh arnold started to hit some balls and i was there and the club pro was there and the club champion was there and another good friend of his was there and arnold looked up at all of us and said what am i doing differently than i usually do and I picked up on it right away, and he asked the other three guys first, and nobody had a clue. And Arnold looked at me and said, do you see anything? And I said, I do. For $5, I do. And he said, you're on. And I said, you squared up your right foot at a dress. And he said, that's absolutely correct. So that got us off to a good start. And then <laughs> we went and played golf, and I duck-hooked every single shot all the way around the golf course, and we got to the 13th hole, and the cart path was on the left side of the hole, and he parked his cart on the cart path and then walked into the fairway to prepare to hit a shot. I was behind the cart about 30 yards, so I needed to go up over the cart or around it, which didn't seem to be much of a problem. And I thought if I take this three iron and I just hit it over the top of the cart with a little bit of a draw, then I can knock this thing on the green. So I took a swing with my three iron, and the ball did not get up very far, but I hit it solid, and it traveled just over his golf bag, just over the steering wheel, went right through the windshield of his golf cart, and went about another 50 yards. And at that moment, the president of the Golf Channel called Arnold on his phone, and I didn't even know the guy's name at that point. It was my first day, and I hadn't even been to Orlando where the Golf Channel was formed. And Arnold said to the guy, yep, I'm here with Peter. Just made his first hole in one. And uh, <laughs> that got us off to a very good start. And Peter, you wrote a wonderful piece about Mr. Palmer that people can find on your Facebook page, kind of paralleling he and the and the Beatles. Do you mind sharing your thoughts on that? Well, it was just an interesting thing for me. I had just gone to see 
Ron Howard's new documentary on the Beatles, which covered their early touring years, well, actually all of their touring years, pretty much from 1962 to 1966, when they then left the road and just did their work in the studio. And, you know, Arnold and the Beatles' careers paralleled each other, you know, in time and in magnitude in many ways. I mean, the Beatles became big in the early 60s at the same time that Arnold did. You know, by the time the 70s rolled around, the Beatles were finished recording and Arnold was done winning golf tournaments. They each had a huge following. You had Beatlemania and you had Arnie's Army. And, you know, only the Beatles knew what it was like to be the Beatles and only Elvis knew what it was like to be Elvis and only Arnold knew what it was like to be Arnold. But they were very much like each other in terms of how big they were, how adored they were, how special they were, how at the top of the field they were. And it just occurred to me that, you know, I loved the Beatles and I loved Arnold and that they had, you know, many similarities. And and, and watching the film just, just made me think of Arnold, who had just passed away. And I thought, you know, their careers just paralleled each other and they they were very similar and they meant the same thing to so many millions of people around the world. And they were cultural phenomenons and they transcended music and they transcended sports. So I just found a great parallel between the two. And Peter, in, in that piece, you tell a great story about Mr. Palmer yelling at you once in the shootout at Bay Hill. Do you mind sharing that story? Not at all. We, uh, I was playing, Arnold used to have a bunch of fivesomes that would play um, out at Bay Hill and and everybody would throw in a few bucks, and you would also have a two-man team versus a three-man team and just try to get the handicaps right. So Arnold and I beat these three other guys, like seven, five, three, and one on the front side, and we're up six, four, and two on the back nine with one hole to play, so there was one more way to win or lose or tie. And Arnold hit a good drive down the left side of the fairway and played his second shot just a little short of the green, but looked like he had a safe chip and putt for a par. But I got a shot on the hole, and I drove down the right side and was a little closer to the hole. And Arnold walked over and said, what are you going to hit? And I said, I'm going to hit seven iron. And he said, it plays a little longer than it seems from this side. He said, maybe five yards longer, play the six iron. So Arnold walked away, and I played the seven iron, and the pin was cut on the right side of the green where it usually is for the Sunday at Bay Hill, and I hit it really solid, knocked it right into the water, five yards short of the green. Arnold got so mad at me and didn't want to split the money or anything, and uh, we ended up tying the hole and winning six, four, and two, and seven, five, three, and one. So we won a lot of ways. And uh, Arnold looked at me later, and he said, you do know I won eight majors, right? (laughs) That's a great story. And, Peter, you interviewed Mr. Palmer on the Golf Channel on Golf Talk Live shortly after the passing of his first wife, Winnie. I, I can't imagine. That had to be a tough interview for both you and he. Well, you know, it was it was interesting because... I hadn't seen Arnold since the funeral 
of his life winning, which took place in November, and this was now just a couple of months later in January. And I thought, you know, if I hadn't seen a friend for a while who had just lost a loved one, the first thing I would say is, I'm really sorry for your loss. So I thought, you know, if I start off by saying that to Arnold, you know, he could have any reaction. He could be fine. He could be not fine. He he could cry. He might not be able to talk. So I tried to prepare for any of the reactions that he might have so that I could make sure that the thing would move smoothly and give Arnold the time the time to do whatever he was going to do in terms of his reaction about his wife. So we sat down, and I said, hello, and he said, hello, and I said, you know, Arnold, I said, you know, there, there's so many who, of us who are upset about the passing of your wife, Wendy, and we just want to know, all of us, if, if you're going to be okay. And at that moment, he held up his hand to stop me from talking, and he couldn't speak. And he got all filled up with tears. And I knew that I needed to then buy him some time to recompose. And I said, you know, Arnold, I said, she used to come into the studio with you and she would sit just a few feet away from us right over there. She would knit, she would sew, and she would write letters. She would read, she would check things on her phone. I said she would do anything but pay attention to the two of us because she just found us so fascinating. And he started to laugh, and then we switched gears immediately. And, you know, in probably the course of 90 seconds, we went from crying to laughing to him giving me a hard time to his being a little bit silly. So, you know, it it ended up working out really well. And when we went to break, I leaned forward and said to him, are you okay? And he said to me, that's what they wanted. And I thought that was very telling that his that he was so acutely aware of his audience and what they expected from him and that he delivered. And so he cried for them and, and uh, you know, he shared his emotions with them and with me. And he knew that that's what people were looking for. And he gave it to them. It was, it was pretty incredible. He got pretty passionate with you in an interview you did with him back in 2001 when you were talking about Callaway and the non-conforming clubs that they had at the time and, you know, the controversy that that's, you know, that raised and the RNA and, and all of that sort of, that was a pretty hot topic once upon a time and clearly struck a nerve with him. Well, it was just sort of curious because, you know, here's Arnold, Mr. Integrity, Mr. Rules, Mr. History, Mr. Tradition, and he had endorsed a non-conforming golf club that you couldn't play with under the rules of the United States Golf Association and the Royal and Ancient. And when that happened, I was just about to go on television. It was October of two. It was October of two thousand, and it was the week of the President's Cup. And an announcement came on just before I went on the air to do a show that he had endorsed an illegal golf club. I got very upset about it. I didn't have time to think about it. We were just going on the air, and it hit me, and I was upset. And I said I was upset, and I didn't understand. And then a couple of days later, Arnold was in the, in Orlando, and I went over to see him and told him, you know, asked him to explain it to me, and uh, he he couldn't actually, and 
you know, he said, you know, what's the big deal? You're making a mountain out of a molehill. And I said, but it's the rules of golf, Arnold. And I said, and you're Mr. Rules of Golf. So it was a curious thing. And so we we got together the morning of the show we were going to do that we did every January. And I said, look, this thing's got to go away. And I said to him, you know, my understanding now is that you're not really saying that people should not play by the rules of the game. You're just saying if there's a golf club that makes the ball go farther, that'll get you to play golf, that'll get you involved with the game, then I am for you using that club to get yourself involved in golf. And we agreed that would be the strategy we would take and that it would then go away. So came the evening, and I said to him, please don't drink before the show tonight because he liked to have a few drinks in the evening. And when I looked over at where he was standing in the dark before the show was about to begin, before he walked over to sit in the chair, I could tell that he'd been drinking fairly heavily. He was weaving, you know, pretty big time. And so he came over and he sat down, and I said, you know, are you okay? And he said, I'm okay. And I said, are you ready to do this? And he said, yep, you go ahead, you lead, and I'll follow. And so I said just what I said a moment ago. I thought, you know, as I understand it, Arnold, you just wanted people to find their way into the game and attending the ball a little farther with an illegal club for a little bit as a way to get into the game. Well, that's great because we need more players. So I said that to him. Instead of him saying, yes, that's right, he said, a lot of my friends have called me a cheater And he said, and if you call me a cheater, I'll punch you in the nose right here and right now. And that was very upsetting to me, and I knew that it was good television, an interesting television, but I knew it was big trouble for me personally because he had now taken a different tact with this thing, and and all of a sudden I was the bad guy. So uh, we, we got through the interview, and we talked about it for a little bit, and we went on to other subjects, but... Uh, it was very uncomfortable for me, and I suspect it was very uncomfortable for him, and it, it damaged our relationship. Uh, we, we we got it back on track, but it definitely, you know, threw, uh, threw, threw a mixture of difficulty into, you know, what had been, you know, a really, really great relationship, and it got a little bit contentious in terms of this issue, and and we got together a couple of months later at an award show that I was hosting and that he was the honoree. And uh, we, we talked about it a little bit. And I think we made it go away. But it was an uncomfortable experience. And I think that part of it had to do with the fact that his wife had passed away and he was easily influenced to, 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 to do this by some folks who found it in their best interest to get him to endorse this golf club like Ely Calloway. And uh, it was just unfortunate for him, and it was unfortunate timing for both of us. And uh, and it was, you know, really the only unpleasant experience that we had together. Peter, switching gears a little bit, um, you know, as Jack Nicholas has said many times about their rivalry, he uh, he battled Arnie's army, but he never battled Arnold Palmer. But that doesn't, you know, obviously doesn't mean they didn't hate to lose to one another, but talk about the times that they got so caught up in playing one another that they lost focus on the rest of the golf tournament. That happened very much. I I think that was basically nonsense. I think there were times where they might have been paired together in the third or fourth round and got, you know, very intent on playing one another. 
that somebody came along and stepped on the gas pedal and went roaring by them. I don't think that they were, you know, in in such a small view of the world that they only saw what the other one was doing. I think that they did get caught up in that sometimes. I don't know if it ever really cost them a tournament or a major. I know they used to talk about that, but, you know, because they were such great rivals and they just wanted to beat each other. But I don't think that all of a sudden they were taking crazy risks or doing things that that were outside of the norm of their game in an effort to beat each other and therefore shoot a pair of 75s when the leader was shooting a 68. So I, I think there was an element of that to their play. But, you know, they didn't play together that much, you know, overall anyway. I mean, they played together at, uh, at Oakland in 1962 and in the playoff. Um, they played the final round at Balthastral together in 1967 where Arnold shot 69 and Jack shot at 65, including getting it up and down with a one iron from 220 yards away to break Hogan's scoring record. Uh, they played together in the final round of the Bob Hope in 1973, which was Arnold's last win. He beat Jack by a shot. But I couldn't, I couldn't name circumstances where they got caught up in each other's games so much that they forgot about what was going on with the golf tournament. They were both too smart to get so wrapped up in that that they would forget to pay attention. So I think that was overblown. Peter, one thing that I don't think people know enough about is how the PGA Tour, as we know it today, was formed back in the late 1960s with the tournament players sort of breaking away, if you will, from the PGA of America and forming their own organization that would eventually become the PGA Tour we know now. What was Mr. Palmer's role in that movement? Well, there there was a sense that uh, players wanted to have a bigger say-so in the way that the tournaments were run. And the PGA of America had been running the PGA you know, the PGA Tour since 1916 when it first formed and when Walter Hagen and Gene Sarazen were playing, you know, hundreds of these tournaments all over the United States in the 1920s in an effort to make money and build up interest in the game. But but Palmer and Nicholas were both very much in favor um, at that point of there being a separation between the, the, the tournaments themselves and the PGA of America because they were both given information which suggested that there would be more money if uh, the two organizations were split up. But I don't think that he was a particular spearhead. I just think it was known that he was in favor of that and that Jack was in favor of that. Um, But, uh, you know, that was something that came and went very quietly at the time. It wasn't a real big fuss. There wasn't any fighting going on. There, 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 there wasn't a lot of contention behavior. Um, so it, it was something that happened quietly, but ultimately turned out to be incredibly great for the players because of the way in which the tour purse strings were structured in terms of deferred compensation and pension plans and now the amount of money that you can make for finishing 20th in a golf tournament you know, is much greater than it used to be for finishing first in the golf tournament. So, you know, it turned out to be a great thing, particularly given, you know, the the later vision of Dean Beeman, who took over, I think, in 1974, 
and uh, Dean is the one that started to have the, the tour build its own golf courses. Uh, he was huge in getting sponsorship. He was huge in getting TV's role expanded to come beyond the four holes that you would normally see on television on a Saturday and Sunday, which was the norm for years. So, you know, it was the start of something great, for, something really great for the players and particularly for marginal players, it worked out particularly well because the way that the pension plans are structured, you didn't have to have an incredible career to have incredible money coming when you uh, when you finished your career on the PGA Tour. Peter, one more before we let you go, talking about uh, you know the Ryder Cup. Wanted to get your thoughts on what you saw from the U.S. team this year and uh, the course setup at Hazeltine. Well, I thought the course setup was a joke. I mean, you know, the the Sunday was the easiest setup of a golf course that I think I've ever seen in watching golf tournaments on television or in person. I mean, every pin was in the exact middle of the green and the flattest portion of the green. I mean, Phil made 10 birdies, and I don't think he had one putt that broke more than an inch. I mean, you know, he wasn't having to make rainbows and all sorts of three- and four-foot breaks. They were all just dead straight five- and seven-footers. There was no rough. The ball set up on top of the grass in what should have been the rough. And uh, the course played, you know, extremely simple for these guys. You don't make ten birdies, and then the other guy in your group make nine birdies because the course is set up with a great deal of difficulty. So there were no hidden pins, but it was, you know, it was the same for both teams. The idea was to have as many birdies as possible, and the course was set up that way. I think that ultimately what what happened in the Ryder Cup is that you had a team with Europe of being in transition. You know, Luke Donald wasn't playing good golf, so he wasn't on the team. Ian Poulter was hurt. This young kid, Russell Knox, who should have been on the team, wasn't on the team, but Darren Clark didn't pick him because he already had a pretty good number of rookies. He made a tragic mistake in picking Lee Westwood, who just happens to be his best friend, but who was, you know, very out of form and just this weekend shot 75-82 to miss the cut. Uh, well, he'll end up missing the cut uh, this evening at the Dunhill Links tournament um, in St. Andrews. Uh, you know, he missed an 18-inch putt on the final hole on the Saturday afternoon, which would have given them a half. And I asked a friend about it the next day, what he thought. And he said, well, haven't you ever missed an 18-inch putt? And this is the guy I play golf with every Sunday. I said, could you remember me missing an 18-inch putt? And uh, so I thought that, uh, you know, he was truly the weak link. And they are a team in transition. They've got a lot of young players who are losing their older players. Westwood's not going to be on the team next time. Darren Clark's certainly not going to be on the team next time. I would suspect Luke Donald and Ian Poulter won't make it next time. And the U.S. team is young and strong and exactly in their prime, and they've got, you know, great guys, and they, you know, and they've got guys who've now, you know, played in, in Ryder Cups who are still really, really young players. They had you know, a great number of veterans, very few rookies. Everybody on the team won a point. So I would say the American team was deeper and stronger, particularly from positions 7 through 12, and that they are a team in their prime for the next two or three Ryder Cups, while Europe is clearly a team in transition. 
Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners, how can they, you know, go and listen to all the great interviews that you've done over the years and then also follow you on social media as well? Well, I have a Facebook fan page, and um, some of the interviews that we did at the Golf Panel can be found on iTunes, the Peter Kessler Show. And uh, i got a couple of things that I'm working on that I hope will uh, will give you the opportunity to, to tell you that I've got a couple of things I'd like people to take a look at, but it's a little premature. But, yeah, but the, 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 uh, where you read the articles that you mentioned this morning during our chat, we're on the uh, Peter Kessler uh, Facebook fan page, and I'm going to try to keep writing there every week and make it as interesting as I can. Peter, there's no better way for me to get to spend a Sunday morning than to listen to you share you know, your stories and your insights. No matter how much time I get with you, it's, it's certainly never enough. I can't thank you enough, too, for uh, continuing to be a part of the show. Um, you're, you're just the greatest. Uh, it's great to be with you. I always enjoy it. I appreciate the great questions and your preparation. And uh, you've got a great fan base, and I'm uh, glad that you exposed me to them. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Peter, I look forward to the next time that uh, I get to share some time with you. In between now and then, my friend, all the best to you and your family. Same to you, Chris. Thank you. All right. Take care, Peter. That is uh, Peter Kessler. Again, go check out the Peter Kessler Show on iTunes. Fantastic stuff. And, uh, folks, I mean it sincerely. There isn't a better interviewer you know, anywhere, than, regardless of sport, than Peter Kessler is. And uh, certainly privileged to get to spend uh, as much time as I have with Peter over the years. So go check it out. We look forward to having Peter back on the show again real soon. Before we get to my next guest, Bob Friend Jr., I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at the Bobby Jones Company. Folks, Raise your game to new heights in performance with a brand that's best known for style, character, and excellence for the last 25 years, and that's the Bobby Jones Company. They have an inspired collection of products that capitalize on fabric technology to deliver a modern look and performance while honoring the legacy of Bobby Jones that delivers on the promise of enduring style. They work hard to earn your respect, your trust, your business, and just as important now, your long-term friendship. Communicate that you're here to stay by wearing clothes from a brand that has enduring style and presence, the Bobby Jones Company. Check out all their great styles in their new fall collection by going to bobbyjones.com. And while you're on their site, folks, click on the equipment link that you're going to see you know, at the top of the page, right? You know, you're going to get to go to you know, see the great line of drivers, fairway woods, hybrids, putters, designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, and that's Jesse Ortiz. Like his father, Lou, and Bobby Jones himself, Jesse has a passion for golf and golf club design. You remember his great tri-wood metal, you know, fairway woods from back in the day with Olimar? Well, now he's putting his innovative designs and creativity, you know, to work for the Bobby Jones Company. Check it out online. You can go directly there by going to bobbyjonesclubs.com or bobbyjones.com and clicking on the equipment link. So uh, please, go check it out. It's really great stuff. We're going to get to Bob Friend Jr. on the other side of this station identification. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. And now back with me and making his eighth appearance on the French Lake Resort guest line is another one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Bob Friend Jr. Let me remind you about Bob's background. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He played his college golf at LSU, where he, David Toms, and the rest of their LSU teammates won the 1986 SEC Championship. He won the Pennsylvania State Championship in back-to-back years in 1984 and 85, turned pro in 1987. He's played on the nationwide PGA and Champions Tour since 1990. 
He had five top ten finishes his rookie year on what's now the Web.com Tour, including a second-place finish at the El Paso Open. He got his first win in 1991 at the Fort Wayne Open. He had five top ten finishes again in 1994 and three more in 97. In all, he's finished in the top ten 27 times and counting. Baseball fans, you're going to remember his father, who played in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966, mostly with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and was a key member of their 1960 World Championship team that beat the Yankees on Bill Mazeroski's home run in the bottom of the ninth in Game 7. And I am thrilled that he is next on the tee again with me this morning. Morning, Bob. How have you been, my friend? I've been great, Chris. How about you? I really enjoyed listening to that uh, Peter Kessler piece. And, uh... You know he he's right about that U.S. Ryder Cup team. I mean we've got we've got a lot of horses in the stable, and uh, you know it was kind of I've, I've I've played a lot of golf with Lee Westwood and know him well, and it was kind of it was hard to watch him, uh, you know, put the old jerk on those putts. But that's that's all part of the game. But uh, Peter is right spot on there. I I think the future is very bright for the U.S. Ryder Cup team. Yeah, and to get you know to kind of expand on your thoughts on the Ryder Cup, Bob. You know, when when you look at you know how it went last week, you know certainly you know an important win for the U.S. team. But uh, what were your thoughts about what you saw from a golf perspective? You know, over the course of you know those three days. Well, again, you know, I think that uh, I think that the people, spectators, other than you, other than playing in the U.S. Open, spectators like to watch birdies, and I think the golf course was set up just for that. And I think that that makes for exciting golf. I think that, uh, you know, it was, I had a conversation with Grant Waite. We had both played in uh, Victoria Island, Vancouver, the Pacific Lynx Championship, and flying uh, back from Vancouver Island to Vancouver, we were discussing, you know, who Davis was going to pick, this, that, and the other. And he thought he would pick Bubba Watson, and I said, I think he's going to pick Ryan Moore. And uh, he ended up picking Ryan Moore, and it was, it was kind of nice to see Ryan Moore actually clinch the Ryder Cup uh, against Lee Westwood there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you go and you take a look at the, at, at what Patrick Reed brings to the table, it brings a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. And, uh, I think that Patrick Reed is, is probably the most important component of that U S Ryder cup team, just because he's got such great spirit. He is such a talented, talented player. And, uh, I just think that, that he has that type of mentality and he's got that type of personality that will go and get everybody engaged in the moment. And um, I really think he's a very important part of that team. You take a look at Dustin Johnson, who has had a wonderful year winning the U.S. Open here at Oakmont in Pittsburgh, and uh, another very important member of that team. But, uh, again, I think that Patrick Reed is the most important component of the team. It was was an exciting uh, weekend of golf. Phil Mickelson actually played very well this year. And, uh, you know, it's probably likely it's his last Ryder Cup. And uh, it was nice to see him go out with a win. And, and Davis Love, obviously the captain, being the, the second time he's been captain of the team, nice to see him finish on a winning note as well. So I think it – I agree with Peter. I think that, uh, you know, Europe is in a transition. And uh, But I, I really like what I saw with the U.S. team. I know Jimmy Walker's a little bit disappointed in his performance. But at the end of the day, he did bring a positive point to uh, the overall team. And, uh, again, I just, uh, I think you just see a new wave of, of young American players that are really should be the team to be here for the next two or three times. And Bob, you know, as you mentioned about, you know, the spirit that Patrick Reed, you know, brought to the, brought to the team, obviously, you know, everyone, you know, sort of touting him as captain America now, and he, you know, he's been paired a lot with Jordan Spieth 
and it's it's sort of interesting when you when you take a look at the two of them. It started to feel like, at least to me, you know, about you know the two guys you know that have sort of swapped places, if you will, you know, and maybe going in a little bit of different direction. You know, Patrick Reed's game is getting elevated, and Jordan seems to be really struggling right now with consistency with his play. You know, sometimes from what we saw last week, sometimes from hole to hole. It would be a, it would be a struggle for Jordan. I'm curious to get your assessment of what you saw from you know or what you think you know the direction of both of those guys is going to be now post the Ryder Cup. Well, I think that uh, you know, look, Jordan Spieth had a he had a transitional year last year. You know, you won the Masters, he won the U.S. Open, and look, your his life changed. Uh, it is you know you win you win one major, it's a life changing experience. You win two in one year. It's a, it's, I mean, it's an unbelievable uh, stress that, is, that he's going to undergo on his time. Uh, I think that once you get to the point where you, you're a multiple major and everything, you're, you know, you're ranked top five in the world, and now you know, he's, he's probably one of the top three most popular players in the world, the demands on his time are immense, and the pressure that he is under is immense. So I think that you go and you take a look at Jordan's swing. I think his swing is, is unique. He's got that little bit of a chicken wing there at impact. Um, but he compresses the ball very well. He's a very good ball striker, and we all know he's a great putter. I just think that he's in a little bit of a transition, trying to figure out who he is and where he is and how he's going to manage his time. You know, one of the things that my father told me uh, years ago from being a professional athlete for so long as you detailed his career on your show is that what the most important thing that you do as an athlete is what you do away from the, the ball field, is how you manage your time. And I think that Jordan Spieth is probably – trying to figure that out. I think that the demand of his time getting pulled in many different directions, I think that that definitely, um, that definitely has changed him a little bit. I think that when you go and you take a look at his golf swing, I don't think his golf swing has changed. You know, as, as, as most of your listeners will understand, you know, they, your, your golf swing really doesn't change from day to day, week to week, month to month, um, but your perception of your golf swing changes. And, and I think that what Jordan has suffered this year is I think he's suffered from a little bit of a focus issue I don't think his golf swing has changed at all. Uh, I still think that, uh, you know, I, I fully suspect that in 2017 he's going to come back and he's going to contend for more majors just because his game is suited for that. He drives the ball long enough. Doesn't obviously know he drives the ball like a, like a Dustin Johnson, but he's got plenty of horsepower under the hood to drive the ball uh, long enough. He's very accurate off the tee, and he's a great putter, and he's a ferocious competitor. And so I fully suspect that he's going to get this all figured out. And by 2017, he's going to get back to where he was in 2015 and contending every single week for major championships and probably plucking another one off. When you go and you take a look at Patrick Reed, I mean, this is a guy that is loaded with moxie. He's loaded with cockiness, which is, which is fine. You know, you, you, you know, you have to, you have to honestly believe that you're the best player in the world. There's nobody else that's going to touch you if you're going to play golf at that level. And certainly he wears that on his sleeve, especially in these team events, especially representing his country. And that's all good. Uh, He's got a very simple golf swing, very compact golf swing, generates an enormous amount of power. And the fact is that, you know, the guy is a birdie machine and you've got to make birdies. You know, you've got to go out there and when you're playing competitive golf, you have to make at least four birdies every single round. And, you know, we've seen his numbers over the years that this guy just absolutely produces birdies by the bushel full and uh, he can perform in big events. So I think that you go and you take a look at those guys. And uh, I think that one is trying to figure out where he is mentally. And I think the other one hasn't had the pressure of winning major championships that Jordan Spieth has had. 
And I think that uh, I think that anybody putting Jordan's shoes again, a multiple major winner in one year, and everybody talking about, you know, he had the possibility of you know to win three in a row, uh, you know, playoff loser at uh, at the Open Championship in 2015. I think that when you go and you take a look at uh, at where he is and where where Patrick Reed is, I think that they're both just fine. I think one just needs to figure out what he's going to do with his time away from the golf course and do maybe do a little bit better job of managing the time and also maybe do a better job of managing his expectations. And, Bob, we, we saw a few fans get tossed out at the Ryder Cup, and it's certainly the most spirited event that we see you know, out on tour. Do you think there's anything that needs to be done differently as we look towards future Ryder Cup events, or do we accept that it was just a small minority of the people and we just let it be known that you know, if you're going to you know, say anything inappropriate or make noise during a player's swing that you're, you're going to get thrown out? Well, I think that when you have when you have fifty five thousand people out there, you're going to have a couple. You're going to have some knuckleheads. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. That's the nature in any spectator sport uh, that you have. Whether it's hockey, you know, you always have some idiot throw something out onto the ice. Baseball, you know, last week we saw some you know guy out there uh, for the Orioles making a catch in in, uh, in, in deep uh, outfield, and a guy throws a beer can at him as the ball is just about in his mitt. You're always going to have idiots and knuckleheads when you have that many people put together. I think that you, there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to stop that. I think that what what you can do is exactly what was done. That the person is tossed immediately, and then once they're tossed, I, if, if possible, if, it, if it's so warranted, then you prosecute. I think that the Ryder Cup is one of those things. You know, we're going to go to Europe. Uh, we're going to go to Europe. We're going to go to France in 2018. And the Americans are going to have to deal with the same thing. You know, they're going to have to deal with, with a handful of fans being rude, doing things, inappropriate things at inappropriate times. And, again, it's all part of it. When you, when you mass that many people together and when you have, uh, you know, the, the, the importance of the event is so high, you're going to have people that are going to misbehave. And, again, what you've got to do is you've got to get those people, you've got to toss them, you've got to toss them publicly where everybody sees that that sort of stuff is not going to be tolerated. And you just make sure that the security is there to handle the issues when they arise. Bob, let's switch gears a little bit and uh, I want to talk to you about, you know, you know your memories and, uh, you know, celebrate the life a little bit of, uh, of Arnold Palmer. He's a man that you've known and been close to for many years. Just curious to, you know, start off, you know, when was the first time you met Mr. Palmer? Oh, gosh, the first time I met Mr. Palmer, I was probably about eight or nine years old with my dad. I went to a uh, big, there's a big sports banquet here in the Pittsburgh area called the Dapper Dan Banquet, and it, it honors the uh, the local athletes and also national athletes that come in. It's a very big affair. Uh, at least it was back, you know, in the 70s up until up until probably the next few years. You know, there's so many awards things that go on anymore, but the Dapper Dan Banquet in Pittsburgh was one of the seminal events in terms of awards uh, to athletes. And I remember meeting him there with my dad um, then. And then uh, I really got to know him when I really kind of started playing golf. I'd really say, you know, about 1978 PGA Championship. I remember when he uh, came out about three weeks before the tournament, he was flying a helicopter, and he actually landed his helicopter uh, close to the ninth green. Uh, you know, obviously he got approval and everything else, but he, he literally landed the helicopter in the fairway of the ninth hole and uh, myself and a bunch of kids ran up there, and he got a helicopter. And I, you know, I said, "Hey, Mr. Palmer, I'm Bobby Friend." He said, "Oh yeah, I know your dad." And you know, he shook my hand, he signed my hat. Um, you know, so over the years, I mean, I've had I've had uh, a lot of interaction with Arnold. Um, 
you know, he's, he was just, uh, he was bigger than life. You know, I, I remember one of my fondest memories, uh, was 1994 U S open, um, uh, at Oakmont. I qualified as the second, uh, the third U S open I had played and I played in 84 as an amateur at Wingfoot when I was 20. And then I played at the, at 88 at the country club. And I played at Oakmont, which was very special to me. Uh, me being a longtime member there, I really desperately wanted to qualify for the U S open and play well. And I qualified up at Sunny Hanna Country Club up in Johnstown. I won the medal there. I shot 68-66, won the medal, qualified for the tournament. And I was, at the time, I was living in Florida. I was living down in Jupiter. Um, upon graduation from, from LSU, I lived in Jupiter from about 86 to 98 and got married in uh, 94, qualified for the Open, and came up to Pittsburgh and was staying, stayed at my parents' house, which is, you know, they lived in since 74 and about 10 minutes away from the club. And so I remember waking up on Monday morning, and my dad was there, and you know, I, it's you know Monday. I had to go register over at the club. And he said, "What are you going to do today?" I said, "Well, I said I'm I'm not going to play, Dad. I said, you know, I'm not going to wear myself out. It's going to be a hot week, as we all remember. You know, the temperatures, the, the heat indexes were well over 105 to 110, which is unusual for Pittsburgh, but that's what it was. And so the, the forecast was hot. And I just said, look, I said I know the golf course better than anybody. I'm just going to go out today. I'm going to register, and I'm just going to practice and work on the short game and putt and this, that, and the other. Probably play a practice round on Tuesday." So I get out there, register, and it's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm down at the range uh, hitting balls. And uh, I'm hitting balls. My dad's there watching me, and I hear this voice. He says, boy, I'd like to get some of that. And I turn around, it's Arnold Palmer. And uh, he had walked out on the range. He came up to me, and he shook hands and spoke with my dad. And uh, then he came up to me and shook my hand. And he said, boy, I said, you look like you're playing well. He said, uh, I'm thinking about going up and playing here in about 20 minutes. He said, would you like to join me? And, you know, I didn't have any plans wow. to play. But, of course, when Arnold Palmer asks you to play, you play. And, uh, you know, so we got uh, – yeah, so it was one of those things where we got up uh, got up on the first tee. It was myself and Paul Goidos and Mark Kalkovecki and, and Arnold. And we got in the first tee. And I said, look, I said, I'm probably just going to play nine holes. And, uh, and, and Arnold said, that's great. He said, not a problem. He said, why don't we play a skins game? And we're paying today, boys. You know, meaning like nobody's walking away on bets. And so, uh, you know, we go up there and uh, we, we play nine holes and, and we probably had probably about four or 5,000 people following us on a Monday. And it was just, you know, he's just such a guy that you sit there and every single person that says hello to him, he looks him in the eye and he waves and he signs autographs. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, the skins kind of evened out a little bit. And I, I said goodbye and, uh, you know, he wished me well for the week. And I saw him a couple of times later in the week. Um, and he was just busy, as you can imagine, being inundated with media requests and whatnot. And then the interesting thing was that uh, I didn't I didn't play well that week. I shot 77, 73, and um, I was paired with Michael Allen and Doug Martin. And Doug is now coaching at University of Cincinnati. So on Friday, uh, we are playing number nine. We come off number nine, and we get on the tenth tenth hole, which is right next to the 18th green, and we are. Uh, we're waiting for the group to clear at 10, and all of a sudden we start. We hear this noise, and we kind of look, and it's Arnold coming up 18 for his last U.S. Open he's ever going to play in. And so we just kind of look at each other and just say, we're not hitting, we're going to watch this. And we literally sat there for about eight minutes, five to eight minutes, risk getting out of out of position with the timing. But you got to watch Arnold Palmer finish his last hole, right. his last twist, whatever. So we got to see that, which was really neat. And then a few years later, um, playing at Bay Hill, I was actually paired with Arnold Palmer and Seve Ballesteros 
on Thursday and Friday of the Bay Hill of Arnold's, you know, the MasterCard Bay Hill Classic. And, uh, you know, I know that, that that pairing was set up by Arnold. I know it's his tournament, and the PJ Tour has certain rules that they follow for making the pairings. But I knew when I looked at I played my practice with Paul Azinger on Tuesday, and I knew uh, when the pairings came out, I knew that Arnold had arranged that. And it was, again, you, you know, he, he didn't make the cut. I did make the cut. Um, Seve missed. But it was just one of those things where Arnold did so many things that he didn't have to do but he did them because this is the kind of the way he was. He just he, he was a very giving person. He always, always made time for young professionals, always did a great job of teaching us how to be better professionals and how to treat people. Um, you know, he was adamant, you know, each, after each of the rounds at Bay Hill, and I, I didn't drink when I was on the road. I mean, I would, you know, when I'd have a week off, I'd go to a pirate game with some friends and have a few beers, this, that, and the other. But when I was on the road, I, when I was playing, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't drink. I was out there for a job and it was my business and I took it very seriously. But after each of the rounds at Bay Hill on Thursday and Friday, uh, you know, we'd get done playing, we'd sign our scorecards, he'd slap me on the back and said, what are you still going to have a rolling rock? And so of course, again, Arnold Palmer asked you to have a beer with him. You have a beer with him. So, um, <laughs> you know, you kind of go in there and you talk to him and, uh, you know, on Friday after he missed the cut, we were there, we had our beer at, at, in the men's locker room there and, I asked him, I said, you know, Arnold, I said, uh, I got to ask you something. I said, you hit every single ball at the flagstick, no matter what the club, no matter where it is. I said, have you always played that way? And he just looked at me and just said, I never knew any other way. He said, I see that pen. He said, I have got to. He said, it just, just draws me in like a magnet. I have to take dead aim. I've got to hit the shot at it. And he said, look, he said, I've won major championships and sixty over 60 tournaments playing that way. He said, but had I played a little bit more like Jack Nicklaus, who is, you know, the greatest player of all time, and, you know, a little bit more of a conservative approach, he said, especially in the majors, he said, I probably would have won three or four more majors. He said, but I'm just not wired that way. And, he, and it was true, Chris. I mean, he never – I mean, we're sitting there on the 18th hole, and, you know, I've got a five iron. He's hitting a four wood. I'm talking to my caddy. You know, the pin's cut on the right. I'm thinking, okay, let's sit at that bunker and try to peel it into the center of the green. He's back there hitting a forward, hitting draws over the water right at the flag stick, you know, landing on the green, going just over. He did that on every single occasion. He just took dead aim at every single flag stick, no matter where it was. And that's, you know, that's one of the, that was one of the allures of, of watching. He's so exciting and so bold and so courageous. There will never be another one like him. And he was just a class guy. All the work, all the charity work that he did with the, the children's hospitals all throughout the nation, um, it was just truly, truly special uh, to get the opportunity to know him, to spend time with him, to play him. It's just things I'll never forget. So, you know, Bob, that sort of begs the question, you know, as a young man, you know, growing up in the game of golf and later as you're, you know, you're playing out there alongside of him, did he ever pull you aside or when you're sitting there having a drink or a beer or whatever it was with him, did he ever give you any advice for what he thought you should do or something that, you know, he wanted to impart upon you? Well, what he always what he always imparted upon everybody was to treat every spectator uh, with respect. Sign everything. Make sure that you're make sure that you, when you sign that, that that they can read it. And you know, one of the other things he always talked about was taking you know, taking your take your hat off when you're indoors. That really was one of the things. You know, guys would come in. We're in the locker having a a beer, and guys would come in with their hats on. He just said, "Boy, I really hate that." He said, "I you know," he said, "I don't know where these guys are brought up. They're brought up in a barn." You know, your mother always told you, your father always told you, take your hat off when you come indoors. So it was really, it really wasn't anything 
tactical in terms of how to play or how to hit a shot, but it was really just the overall way that you carry yourself as a golf professional. Um, you know, dress properly, greet people properly, treat everybody with respect, sign every single thing that's put in front of you, and just uh, always make sure that, that you're always on stage and that everybody is always looking at you and kids look up at you and always make sure you carry yourself as a professional. And those are lessons that, I've, that I still have to this day. You know, I know that, uh, you know, anytime I get done playing in a tournament, such as like I was in Vancouver uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the little kids are there around the 18th green. I emptied my bag. I had no balls left. I had no gloves left. Signed everything for him, took all the time, talked with the kids, looked them in the eye. That's the sort of stuff that Arnold Palmer teaches you. Arnold Palmer did for his entire life. He just, you know, every single person that he had contact with, he made eye contact with him. He gave him a firm handshake, looked him in the eye. And every single person that walked away from that felt like he was a personal friend of theirs. So it's really the overall how to become a professional, how to act like a professional, and how to really elevate uh, yourself because everybody is, is looking at you and everybody's looking at you. And, and you have to be an example for, for kids in the United States and kids that play the game golf and and kids that, that don't play the game of golf, see how you act, they learn from that. Bob, just uh, one more before we let you go. Give us an update. What are you doing now and what's up next for you? Well, what I'm doing is I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning for North Carolina. I'm going down to qualify on Tuesday for the SAS championship. And then after I play there, then I'm going to go to Las Vegas for a three-day tournament uh, that the Tri-State PGA section has in Las Vegas. And then at, once I come back from Las Vegas – um, I'm going down to Florida for a few weeks to prepare for Champions Tour qualifying. I'm going to play the first stage at uh, the Disney World Palm Course, and then once I get through that stage, the finals are at the Magnolia Course at Disney World, two golf courses I know very well from my PGA Tour career. And, uh, you know, Lord willing, uh, we're going we're gonna to be uh, top five and be fully exempt next year in the Champions Tour. Ah, there you go. Rooting hard for you, my friend. Bob, Thank let you so much, also. Chris. Let our listeners know how they can follow you and stay up to date with, uh, you know, how you're progressing there over social media. Well, the only one that I really do is I do, uh, I do Twitter, which is Bob friend underscore golf. And I'll get on there and throw some pearls out there occasionally. And, uh, you know, obviously they can follow me on the champions tour on the PGA tour.com website. And before we get off, I want to thank all the men and women that are out there serving in the armed forces, protecting our liberties and freedoms. Uh, your bravery, your courage, and your selflessness, uh, we cannot duplicate that. And I just want to say thank you to all the men and women serving in our armed forces all around the world. Ah, thank you for doing that, Bob. And uh, also, thank you so much for uh, being generous with your time again with me this morning. Always great to spend time with you, Bob. You're absolutely one of my all-time favorites. Thank you so much, Chris. You do a great job, and I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Bob. All the best to you and your family, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon. God bless. Take care. That is uh, Champions Tour Pro Bob Friend Jr. Again, be sure to follow him on Twitter and then uh, check him out at the SAS Championship, the Vegas Tournament, and then Champions Tour Qualifying. You know, Bob's a, just an absolutely great guy, and I've said many times on this show, you know, part of uh, what would be my dream fivesome, if you will. So be sure to follow Bob. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode. Before we close up shop, I want to continue to remind you about our friends and our partner, PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear about the great things that they're doing. 
The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org, smga.org. Yeah, they're doing some amazing thing, things, folks, over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Peter Kessler and Bob Friend, Jr. for you know making today's show so interesting for me to sit back and listen to the great stories that they had to tell. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari, our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it on the Armed Forces Radio Network. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio. It is also available, you know, just like this show, on iHeartRadio. Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, SoundCloud, over on Podbean. Our great friend over, great friends over on Podbean are, are featuring our shows every single week. We can't thank them enough for that. You know, on Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by legends and stars from around the NFL. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. And you can find us online. This show, nextonthetea.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. From either site, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, folks. Plus, you can keep up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be as well. Folks, I can't thank you again for choosing, you know, to listen to this show. We know you got thousands of choices for shows and podcasts to stream or download. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Christmas Carol. Where PGA and LPGA are legends, pros and top instructors And media members go to tell their stories Join us the same time every Saturday To hear more stories about the game we love From the people who love sharing those stories with you It's all about the great game of golf It's all about the great game of golf